Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off your purchase. bluenile.com code LISTEN. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. It's Beth from the right here for a special episode of Pantsuit Politics. Today, I'm joined by Robin Laverne Wilson of the Green Party and Alex Merced of the Libertarian Party. Robin and Alex are candidates for the United States Senate in the state of New York. They were excluded from the debate between Republican Wendy Long and Democratic incumbent Chuck Schumer, and I'm excited that they're sharing their views with New York voters and also with all of our listeners who are interested in new views and parties beyond the Democrats and Republicans. As Pantsuit Politics listeners know, I'm usually joined by Sarah from the left, and we discuss issues without shouting or insults and with plenty of nuance. Sarah is a candidate for city commission in her hometown of Paducah, Kentucky, so today she's out knocking on doors herself. She'll be back with me for special episodes airing daily from Tuesday to Tuesday during this last week before the election and also the week of our Pantsuit Politics birthday, so we hope you'll join us for those episodes. Alex and Robin, thanks again for being here. So prior to today's debate, I gave each campaign a list of topics that we'll review during the debate. Education, climate change, foreign policy, the role of senators, and economic policy. The candidates have not seen specific questions and have not made any demands about rules for this debate. 
The transparency and cooperation of these campaigns, along with the podcast format, leaves us uninhibited from the usual obstacles to having a substantive exchange of ideas. Our only format restrictions are that we'll have two opening statements, one hour of debate, and two closing statements. And with that introduction, I'll turn it over to you, Robin, for our first opening statement. Thank you so much, Beth. Um, My name is Robin Laverne Wilson. I'm also known as Dragonfly um, in the artist and activist community. And I am honored that the Green Party contacted me personally and directly and invited me to be the candidate for U.S. Senator of New York State. And I'd like to think that I, in general, represent what will hopefully become a new trend, a new direction in our electoral politics which is truly governance of the people, by the people, and for the people. And also representing a different and new kind of urgent diversity that we need amongst our elected officials. And when we think of diversity, we often think of uh, very specific identity politics such as gender and class and culture, race, ethnicity, creed, etc. But at this point, with the stakes being as high as they are, we need a new kind of diversity of thinkers in the room. We need to have artists and activists and educators. We need to have scientists, engineers. We need to have the organizers. We need to have the people that that cook our food and, and grow our food and clean our houses in the room to find the solutions for all the problems that we are currently facing together. And I also, more so than a very specific policy or platform, I have principles and philosophies that would guide me as our senator, not your senator, but our senator, because all of those policies would affect me just as directly and deeply. And those principles are that planet plus people plus peace equals prosperity. And it must be in that order for us to truly receive restoration of our planet, care for all of its people, and ultimately peace that will lead to prosperity that as is ubiquitous as sunlight. Thank you so much, Robin. Alex, can we hear from you now? Hey, everybody. My name is Alex Merced, and I'm the 2016 Libertarian Party candidate for U.S. Senate here in New York. And I'm a libertarian through and through. So basically, I'm always going to side on trying to give people as much control over their lives as possible. And that's all I care about, protecting people's rights and defending the Constitution, etc. But more so than any single issue, what I want to do is really change the culture of politics. And basically, what I want to do is lead by example. So as a U.S. senator, there are three areas that I think that politicians of any party should be expected to have. And that's thoughtfulness, giving thoughtful answers, uh, accessibleness, being able to reach out and get an answer from someone, and transparency, always saying what you mean. And I plan on living that example as a U.S. senator, so that way people in all parties begin to expect that from their elected representatives. So I'm really looking to change the culture of Washington, but at the same time, uh, fight for my libertarian principles, but also represent the people of New York. And on that, regardless of what your principles are, I I plead with people to vote principle over power this year. So whether it's voting for Green Party uh, Robin or Libertarian Party me, 
Either way, you're voting for principle, and that's better than voting for the power and the power hu uh, hunger of the two major parties that basically just tell people what they want to hear, but then do something completely different when in office. So basically, if you want to change the culture of Washington, you need to change the culture of how you vote. And that's why I say this year, vote principle over power, vote green, vote libertarian. And uh, that's my message. Well, thank you both very much. I think it's great to know, even from your opening statements, what a different quality this debate is going to have than most of what we hear every day. So I'm really excited about that. I'd like to start by talking about education. In the past 18 months, we have heard a lot about college affordability and student debt. But studies indicate that the best predictors of students' future learning and success start much earlier than that. And specifically, you can really tell how someone is going to kind of make it in our educational system today at the third grade reading level. So I'm wondering what issues are important to each of you about primary education and what policies, if any, you would advocate for related to primary education in the United States Senate. And I will start with you, Robin. Oh, well, thank you, Beth. Um, I can say that I'm a product of a quality public school education. And from what I am seeing and hearing and observing, that kind of quality does not quite exist as it used to. It still goes back to the incredible inequity that we have in the way that public school is funded. And I am very much against the trend of um, divesting from our public schools and our communities and diverting them into, into the privatization that we're seeing in just about any industry. And you would think that education would not be considered an industry per se, but the, the whole approach of treating any kind of educational institution as if it were a business and a bottom line is completely shortchanging all of our potentials for success across generations. Um, I can also say that this is something that becomes an intergenerational problem. It's definitely not just a young people problem. It's not just a millennial problem. I'm 42 years old and I'm saddled with student loan debt. Now, again, if you have parents who are struggling with children who can't afford college, and I realize that you said that you're looking at uh, uh, elementary school, but it's all interconnected. Right now, the millennials are the children of people who are currently still being saddled with student loan debt, the parents of the millennials. And so when you have generations of people that are trapped into indentured servitude, that in itself disrupts the ability of many parents to be as fully present and invested in their child's education as they had been generations ago because they're struggling so hard to make ends meet. And so you have a problem of an economic situation where the parents are so divorced from being involved in their own children's lives. And then you have an inequity in the way that public schools are funded and all of that needs to come to a screeching halt. We're also investing way too much of our money and what's going on overseas rather than right here at home with our young people and their future. So, and, and furthermore, lastly, on the paradigm of treating public education as if it were a business 
business rather than a public service is also shortchanging our children because from the feedback that I'm getting from teachers and parents alike is that they're only being educated just enough to maybe land a decent job rather than educated enough to be fully aware, fully educated uh, thinkers in their own right. So bullet points of what we do to improve and address our education is what we need to urgently divert so much of the funding that we have in the military as well as in the school to prison pipeline and put it directly into our young people, starting at pre-K, um, starting with filling them with language, multilingual language and exposing them to as much information and opportunity and, and creativity as possible in the third grade, they're still starving for more information and, and full of questions and encouraging that. We need to replace common core with common sense and, and completely revamp our education system so that it is relevant to what young people's lives are like now. Because what my life was like in as a third grader in the early 80s versus what it's like for a third grader today are completely different, yet our education system in Common Core doesn't seem to fully reflect that. And finally, we need to have way more community control of our schools. So basically, uh, my view on education is I agree that uh, the younger you are, the bigger education is going to have an impact on you. But I don't want to. I want to break out of the paradigm that basically all education happens in the in the realm of schools, and that more dollars necessarily means more results. We can take a look at different states and take a look at when you break it down uh, dollars per student. Sometimes the states that have more dollars per student don't necessarily have better results than those that have less. So it has to, a lot of it has to do with the underlying methods of education. And a lot of times, what controls or what limits the ability for schools to experiment with different methods is oftentimes the bureaucracy in our education system, which has a lot to do with the Department of Education. Uh, the way the Department of Education works is that they take dollars from the states and then they say, we'll give you back a fraction of that dollar if you follow X, Y, and Z rule. But then that limits the diversity in our schools and also limits the ability to find new methods for better outcomes. But at the same time, it doesn't even have to even always come from there. Let me tell you the story about a supporter from Rochester, New York, a Drew Beeman. He was an educator. He was teaching in public schools, but he felt the bureaucracy limited him too much to teach kids the way he wanted to teach them. So he became uh, a, freelance, a freelance educator where now what he want, basically what he would do is that he would basically find families who want to pay for him to educate their kids. But for every class he'd get paid to do, he would make sure he spent time uh, doing a free class uh, for inner city kids because that's who he really wanted to get to. And when I met with him, we came, we and him discussed his his model and discussed a platform called Patreon, which allows people to essentially donate to people doing things like this. So now he's he's basically seeking out people and building up a list of people who want to fund his effort to educate and bring new educational opportunities to inner city kids that doesn't require taxpayer money, that doesn't require bureaucracy. It's people taking it upon themselves through through their communities to solve problems today. So a lot of times people always want political answers for everything. When there's community answers for things today, if we stop thinking within that sort of, well, what can taxpayer money, what can politics do for us now? 
and we get we need to break free from that. So using models like what Drew Breeman is doing in Rochester, um, rethinking the role of the Department of Education, and also just rethinking how we educate, because there's so many different platforms, such as Khan Academy, um, basically different homeschool platforms that make it easier for parents to homeschool their kids if they want, or even supplement education that they're already getting in their schools with, uh, with very... Uh, a uh, lot less effort than it would have required 10, 20 years ago. So the technology is improving to give people education opportunities in other ways. Um, so if we look more towards that and look to our communities, I think we can make much more change, but we can also improve our schools by rethinking the Department of Education. And also when it comes to student loan debt, if we make student loan debt uh, dischargeable in bankruptcy, you can change the whole culture around student lending that will change the way loans are given and also change the way that colleges price their tuition. How that would change, I would refer people to the video on my website where I talk more about student loans. Thank you both. Robin, I would, I would like, like to, to give you an opportunity to respond specifically to that point about the dischargeability of student loan debt in bankruptcy. Is that a policy proposal that you would support? Absolutely. We, we just gave uh, how many major banks and, and corporate institutions uh, it wasn't even a, a, a jubilee, a debt jubilee. We, we just gave them goo gobs of money. And what what kind of investment in our overall society did that was? How, how did our lives improve? But when you talk about improving people's day-to-day -day lives and their potential for success, education is the greatest equalizer. And yet we are not investing in that and anything. The model for it currently leads to indentured servitude almost lifelong once again i'm i'm in my 40s i still have undergrad student loan debt and if you look at the history of how student loan debt it's because sally may privatize it's also going a little bit further than that uh, college tuition began to escalate starting around the time that many public institutions were were forced to integrate and start admitting students of color so this is another issue that you cannot necessarily separate um, race and class from understanding why we're in the situation that we're in today. The political is what affects our day-to-day -day lives and vice versa. It's our experiences, our identity, individually and collectively that influences policy. So not to say that I disagree with homeschool and and uh, using Khan Academy and many of these other forms of education. I'm completely for that. But I would like to say that that does not completely excuse our government from living up to its responsibility to also provide that kind of opportunity and dignity to every single member of society. There are people who don't necessarily have the time, resources, or ability to homeschool their children. Maybe because they were also caught up in the poverty uh, and undereducation, and so don't have the means and skills and abilities to do that for their children. Does that mean that their children should be shut out from that kind of opportunity? No. So to say that, yes, more homeschool, yes, more innovation, more opportunities, but we still, as a country, as a community, are obligated to make sure that every single one of our children who are who, who don't have means on their own to pay for their own education, we have an obligation to those children to give them an equal opportunity. 
So I want to move on to climate change, and I'll start with you, Alex, on this topic. What specific concerns regarding climate change or environmental policy generally do you think are not being adequately addressed today, and and what would you propose we do about them? Generally, where I think there's the most area to move forward on is in sort of the, the policy favoritism between different energies. There are a lot of subsidies to different types of energies, including oil, such as liability caps on oil companies that I think should be repealed because basically you don't you don't want policy favoring one technology over another because it creates um, it makes it makes it harder for new innovations to, to take hold, become uh, viable, etc. So I would be for removing uh, essentially things like oil caps, I mean, liability caps for oil companies and other subsidies for all types of energy so that way they can operate in a fair field. Because what happens is that we always kind of choose, like, we want this technology to to win. The problem is there's technologies that haven't even been created yet or new avenues that we can't even anticipate yet. But when you have an environment that's sort of influenced in one way versus the other, uh, you, you direct real resources to other things. Take a look at what's going on here in New York City where solar city is starting to fail, uh, Solyndra failed a while ago. It's not. I think solar will eventually become viable, but the thing is that those resources could have maybe been used in other technologies that could have been more viable necessarily now. Now, um, on, in another uh, thought process is we've set ourselves back as far as moving off fossil fuels because of the way we responded to the recession in 2008. And this is where I think monetary policy in the Federal Reserve plays a huge role role. Because basically what happened is that in response to the recession, which I don't think this was a necessary to respond to this recession, I think if people studied the recession of 1920, which had a very little government response and actually had a much more robust economic recovery versus the recession of 1929, where you had a very uh, huge government response and you had a very slow, robust uh, recovery. And again, there's a good book on that called The Forgotten Depression by uh, Jim Grant on, on that episode we can see that we didn't have to lower interest rates down to zero when the economy collapsed in 2008. But because we did, we made certain investments suddenly make a whole lot more sense. One of those was oil drilling. So oil drilling became huge because interest rates were so low for so many years right after 2008. And this led to the oversupply of oil that has decreased the price of oil to where it is now. And the problem with, the problem with that is we've basically by artificially booming investment in oil, through our interest rate policy, we've created uh, a huge surge or surplus of oil, which has made a really low price of oil, which makes it much harder for other technologies to be viable because fossil fuels have now just become that much cheaper. So it makes the barrier for other technologies to have to jump over to become viable alternatives that much higher. So if anything, we've set ourselves back probably decades because of the way we responded to the economy. So those who, who say we need to stimulate, we need to uh, you know, drive interest rates down and use the Fed we set ourselves back environmentally. Sometimes you can actually do the most for the environment by uh, by basically not doing something as far as, what, far as interest rate policy with the Fed or far as not giving liability caps for oil companies. And even when it comes to the way we do our local infrastructure, there's an episode of the Alex Merced cast, my podcast, where I talk about what happens if the, how we would change the way we design cities if we paid for our usage of roads. Because then what would happen is that basically we'd build things closer together. Right now, everything is built far away from each other. So in most places, you're driving a long time to go to your store. And that means you have to build more road, which means there costs more to maintain those roads, which means you're using up more of the environment. If you had a more market-based, more price, a price system that priced these things, these externalities wouldn't exist. But you don't necessarily have to force these externalities to be 
priced in. Some of them would naturally be paid in if we just thought about things differently. Um, and that's what I have to say about that. So I'm sure that Robin is jumping out of her seat to talk about this as the <laughs> Green Party candidate. And, and so, so Robin, I want to get to what, if anything, you heard in Alex's answer that you agree with. And then my follow-up question to that would be, how would you, given that these issues are so important to your party and your platform, how would you go about prioritizing action on environmental policy? Okay. Well, I, I, I do think there is definitely some overlap. And and Alex, you, you give some really great economic responses. And unfortunately, it, it, it really pains me that our viability as a people and as a planet is still tied up to something that's as external and contrived as money. Um, and at this point, I also prefer to not just say climate change, but we're facing really dire ecocide. And the reason I say that is because to me, it's not just climate change and fossil fuel that is the issue. It's also the overall way that corporations have taken over and, and strong-armed themselves into utter abuse of the planet to which we will ultimately have to answer to at some point. And it's not through money. Um, I, I think it was very enlightening what you said about um, how we have this surplus of oil as a result of our response to the recession, but that was a missed opportunity to invest in solar, which includes uh, wind and water. And the fact that these, these companies have failed, like Solar City, maybe that's an indication that this is something that doesn't necessarily need to be capitalistic in nature, that this is something that is a public work and a public utility, and we need to completely de decentralize our energy systems for a variety of reasons. One, so that we are no longer as dependent on fossil fuels that is leading to the other destruction of our planet and the, and the prosperity and viability of future generations. But the more that we invest in renewable energy and the less dependency that we have on fossil fuel, the more overall security that we have on a global level because we are no longer depending on uh, imperial wars for oil and energy. This all comes back to rugged individuality that I know is upheld as a libertarian uh, value. The individual community coming together and creating a decentralized um, cooperatively owned solar panels. And we have to start with where we are. There's no excuse. Again, if capitalism is not the solution, cooperatively owned, decentralized, local energy, where we're all invested. Because what happens is once we start investing in it, the innovation is seems to naturally want to take place. And we improve the systems of solar energy and wind options that are available because we've invested in that and not in this ongoing dirty structure. And that's also going to empower people to have loads of jobs to clean up this mess that we made. To me, this is also tied into also decentralizing 
our food sources and no longer depending on major corporations like Monsanto that wants to now turn into Bayer so that again, we have decentralized our economy, our food sources, our energy, hyper-local control of the necessities that we need, food and energy. We are special breakfast people here at Pansy Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Well, it's so interesting to me that the two of you uh, both keep coming around to sort of decentralization and local control. So, Alex, I'll ask you, do you see capitalism as inconsistent with any of what Robin just described? Or said another way, if you and Robin were sitting next to each other, both as United States senators, 
what kind of policy outcome could we see from the two of you that you think would uh, would be mutually beneficial? Yeah, no, I think a lot of what Robin says is totally compatible within a libertarian framework. I mean, all mm-hmm. basically, and then but first, I just want to cons- mention about the idea of prices because the prices aren't prices, money. They're just there's just essentially a, a method of accounting in a sense. Prices are just indicators of actual resources actual labor, actual time that's being spent to produce different goods and resources. And they help indicate people's behavior. Um, For example, the example I always love to use is car insurance. So when you go buy a car, if you buy a car that's more likely to be stolen, um, you're going to have to pay more for car insurance. That price transmitted information that you otherwise wouldn't have. And basically gives you an incentive to make a more prudent choice. So prices help us make more prudent choices and oftentimes more environmentally friendly choices. So again, going back to the analogy I was trying to make before with the roads, people had to pay for every mile they drove on the roads. Um, What would happen is that they'd have an incentive to drive less or an incentive to carpool more. That price would basically incentivize more environmentally friendly behavior. Prices and, and markets actually help us be aware of what resources we're using up by seeing the prices that we have. So if we didn't have imperial wars that involved oil, if we didn't subsidize oil, oil prices would be higher. And that would be a true price reflecting to us of the actual supply of that resource, which would make the development of alternatives uh, much more the, the incentive naturally there because people will want to try to produce a lower cost alternative. So it helps us uh, allocate resources more. Now, going to cooperatively owned businesses, I'm all for co-ops. I think co-ops are a very interesting, and there's some very successful uh, cooperatively owned businesses out there, whether they're labor-based co-ops or community-based co-ops, kind of like a, a lot of little co-ops here in Brooklyn where uh, everyone kind of shares in the control of a local grocery store or something like that. And I do believe that we can, through policy, uh, make it easier for those kind of entities. Like, I'm all for creating a legal entity uh a, a sort of um, basically a, a tax-free entity for people to do sort of uh, collective purchasing and collective selling. So imagine that instead of government becoming a single a single payer for healthcare, people created a legal entity that they could all sign up for. It's tax-free that they set up, they voluntarily organize. Um, just government allows them to create this legal entity, and they everyone signs up for it and chooses to pay a fee to this organization, and that organization basically b- makes healthcare or help purchases medicine in bulk for them, whatnot. There's already actually organizations that are doing this. They're called health sharing networks, and they're mm-hmm. offering people lower cost alternatives to the current healthcare system, which is just basically the worst of all worlds. Um, so I, yeah. So <laughs> bottom line is I think we can, people working together to create community solutions, cooperative solutions, that ability is there. We just don't want to, as a libertarian, I don't want to tell people that they can't pursue solutions outside of that either. I don't want to limit people's choices. But I do think if we, I'm all for advocating people to try to do any type of solution. That's, that's all what a free market is. It's just that you have the freedom to try to find any kind of solution that you want. That doesn't preclude community-based solutions. Um, so that's, 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 so I think there's nothing incompatible with that. I'm just against a top-down using the federal government to sort of force these types of solutions because oftentimes it's not just the solution that needs to be right, but it's also the people who implement the solution. And government oftentimes is not very good at choosing the right people to implement the solution because the people are chosen based on political favors, not chosen based on merit or other things. So I'd rather actually have like 10 different organizations try to do the same thing and the one who does it the best survive because basically they have to compete instead of one organization that's politically decided and there's no alternative and we're just stuck with bad governance from politically favored bureaucrats. 
So that's sort of my contention. Robin, you know, you bring up a, oh, go right I, ahead, I Robin. Mean, I was going to give you a chance to respond. <laughs> well, you know, you, you, you bring up um, some really good points. And I agree, Alex, that there's probably a lot of wonderful, fruitful overlap between our worldviews and policies that, that we could propose. And, and, and because we did have a conversation beforehand that we wanted to model a, a much more positive, progressive, and, and civil form of debate, I, I'd like to think that we can use this as an opportunity to, to sort of um, amplify each other rather than try to tear each other down. And one of the huge things that I also support is that we need to have way more transparency overall with our government, and which allows us to have more decision-making or, or more of a stake in the decision-making for these kinds of policies uh, rather than them holding it close to their hand and giving these kickbacks and favors to their cronies. Uh, but there's a little bit of a, a contradiction in that as well, whereas we acknowledge that our government has given subsidies to the fossil fuel industry, but could the government has a huge missed opportunity and power to create subsidies as a solution to get us off of the fossil fuels so that we can become energy independent. And I feel more and more adamant that energy independence is probably our key to fixing almost everything that is wrong with this country and the direction that we're going as a planet, especially. Um, that way we can we can stop diverting so much of our money into military aggression and instead investing into education, investing into clean food, uh, investing in these cooperatively owned businesses and completely decentralizing because that's a, that's the problem. We have we have these banks that were too big to fail. We have these corporations that are too big to fail. We have we have AT&T wanting to merge with Time Warner, another form of monopolizing our choices. And so rather than having 10 businesses in the analogy that you just gave and the one being the one that survives, why does it always have to be just one? We we need more clean choices. And sometimes, yes, I think that our government and our tax dollars should be invested in nurturing more of those choices. Well, Robin, you gave me such a great segue to transition to foreign policy because uh, <laughs> that's that's right where we're going and and understanding that peace and scaling back military aggression is a part of your platform I want to ask you about what's happening in Syria right now and how the Assad regime is on a daily basis slaughtering innocent people. Civilians are caught in the crosshairs of the battle um, that that Russia and the Assad regime are waging ostensibly against ISIS and other forces. I'd like to ask both of you, and I'll start with you, Robin, since I alluded to your platform of peace. Um, how the current administration is doing in its handling of Syria and what, if anything, you would advocate for related to Syria as a United States senator. Okay. Um, I'll be honest with you that of all of the things on the table, foreign policy is not my strongest. So this is more of a, a matter of, of principles rather than policy that guides me. And this is also where I feel like um, my anchor in the world 
as an artist activist definitely takes precedence. And this is a matter of what is ultimately the most humane way to handle foreign policy. Because I take a matriotic vet rather than a patriotic worldview. And that the one thing that we all share in common is this planet. So this also scaling back also ties into how the choices that we've made in terms of our energy infrastructure has ongoing intergenerational multi-decade ramifications. And it is clearly documented that the effects of climate change is a huge cause of the disruption that's happening in Syria and that region of the world and in general, the world at large. And of course that ties into how imperialistic capitalism has influenced the entire world and destabilized many regions, which again, we can go into documentation, we can go into a lot of even what's coming out with WikiLeaks and seeing that our government has played a big part in fostering those disruptions. Again, going back to we need more transparency. And again, I support Alex Merced's absolute transparency in what our government is, is doing. And I also believe that we have to actually sit down and talk to each other rather than at each other. As a general, general way of dealing with all of our issues worldwide. Um, Alex, I also wanted to say the thoughtfulness, accessibility, and transparency. That that's that's an amazing global policy as well. So we need to rethink the way that we are funding our military and and going in and disrupting these regions and instead instead pulling back instead of stirring up the pot and also when we pull away from fossil fuels we no longer have a militaristic stake at what's going on in these oil rich resource rich regions Thank you, Robin. So I guess I would just want to ask one follow up before I love the same question to Alex. Does that mean that from a military standpoint, you would advocate for a fairly isolationist approach, understanding that you see climate change as a as a global, not even climate change, but environmental policy and care as a global initiative. But would you just let these conflicts happening in the, the Middle East play out amongst the stakeholders in the Middle East and, and keep America out of it? You know, I'll be honest with you. I'm, I, I don't think that I feel comfortable giving a definitive answer to that. And, and, and the reason why is because during the course of this campaign, I really have focused more on hyper-local domestic issues, um, more than and global policy because I representing regular New Yorkers who are honestly a bit detached from what's going on in the world and yet don't see the link of how what's going on in the rest of the world actually affects their day to day, literally down to, you know, the price of gas and the price of bread. We've globalized our culture. We've globalized our economy. But I'm also saying that we need to stop being that 
agitators and the cause of so many of these disruptions. If we are creating our own energy from the world's largest, safest, and freest nuclear power plant, which is known as the sun, then we no longer have to go overseas and, and disrupt what's going on in other countries. And then, then it really becomes a matter of can our military actually serve more of a humanitarian role rather than an imperialistic one. And again, that comes from having a matriotic versus a patriotic worldview and policy. Well, I really appreciate your your candor and all of the connections that you've drawn. Um, Alex, I want to turn to you now and ask you, how is the current administration doing in its handling of the situation in Syria? And what's your perspective on the use of military force, particularly to combat ISIS and to help the civilians who are caught in the crossfire? Okay, so first I want to just start off with the word isolationist, just because I take a lot of umbrage with that word, because I feel mm-hmm. people throw that word around when to imply that basically if you don't feel that the U.S. should engage in military conflicts around the world, that somehow you want to isolate yourself from the world. When I think, to me, a truly isolationist policy is one that does pursue to have uh, to engage in conflicts around the world. So to me, I always say that an isolationist policy is one of war and bribery. Because we take a look at our policy around the world of regime change, which uh, I talked a little bit about on the show, basically... We what happens when you change regimes? Oftentimes, you don't have you don't leave stability in its wake because it's not like the people chose their leaders. It's not like this change of regimes was organic. Where where it does happen organically is where it is sustainable. For example, Tunisia, where basically they organically changed their regime. It was the U.S. didn't get involved; they did it. But when we get involved, Iran, Iraq, Libya, Syria, Guatemala. All you see is instability after the fact. And the more we do it, the more the instability grows and the more then there's another conflict. And then we get involved in that conflict and we keep stretching out farther. So to me, it's when to, to me, leaving people to decide their own fate organically is the best thing you can do for stability because people need to figure out what it's it's up to them to choose what kind of nation they're going to have. This is what happened in Iraq. We changed the regime. We tried to train an army, but the thing is that people, the people who were trained in the Iraq army, they didn't have a stake in the whole idea of Iraq. Every, Iraq is really like sort of a lot of different cultures and nations. And we we're trying to force them to have this idea and this sort of idea of Iraq, and they didn't. And the minute that sort of ISIS came and attacked, a lot of them just basically turned around and left their equipment there. And all, all the money that we spent and U.S. lives that we spent was, all went out the window. And now ISIS has ground in Iraq and in Syria. So to me, this sort of trying to force stability just is to us, to me, more isolationist because we're creating less friends around the world. I feel the, the policy of the last 16 years under Bush and Obama has made us less, more isolated than ever before, not more inclusive of the rest of the world as we've just basically gone around and said, here's what we're going to do and just doing it and basically circumventing the process by basically not looking for congressional authorization, using authorizations from back in the early 2000s to justify interventions now. Um, this this is not respectful of the process. It's not respectful of the Constitution. And then I'll, let me segue back to um, basically to foreign aid, because a lot of people believe that most of our foreign aid is um, for humanitarian reasons. And the human aid that is for humanitarian reasons, there's great literature on how it doesn't necessarily always have the effect that you want. I would uh, basically look up the economist, uh, his last name is Westerly. 
He wrote a lot of great books on how foreign aid and how oftentimes it doesn't have the effects that we desire. But also a lot of our foreign aid is to pay other countries to buy weapons from our, gun, our weapons manufacturers. And the argument they make for this is an idea called military preparedness. They say, well, if we don't make sure that our factories are building guns now, then, well, they won't build them when we need them. The problem is the fact that you're always ready to go into war makes you more likely to jump into war. It makes that decision marginally easier to make. Um, and on top of that, when we flood these other areas that we give them foreign aid, so that way they buy guns from us, we flood those regions with weapons, making instability in those regions more likely and and basically, then we send our U.S. troops, we send our, our children, our brothers, our sisters, our mothers into war over there um, because we decided that we want to make sure that we're ready whenever we need to be ready. But instead, we're actually stretching ourselves more thin than ever because we have troops all around the world. People are going through three, four tours back to back. They're tired. They want to spend time with their children, with their families. Is We really need to heavily rethink our policy. There's also a lot of money we can save there. You can give people back not just their money, but their money is their time. If you can cut taxes because you can save money in the military, because you can save money in rethinking a lot of what the federal government does, that extra couple bucks helps people make ends meet, helps people not have to work maybe an extra three hours so they can spend time with their kids. You can We drastically rethink these things. You can have a drastic rethinking of the quality of life that people have in the U.S. That's what I have to say about this. So I want to move on. I, I don't, actually, because I could talk to you both about this for a very long time, but I want to make sure that we cover uh, the, the spectrum of topics. So you're both seeking a Senate seat in the state of New York. Um, I have I have two questions for you about your role as a senator from the state of New York. One, are there concerns specific to New York that you'd like to see addressed during your tenure? And secondly, I'd like for you to hit on in your response the the idea of the Senate as an advisor and a body of consent for presidential nominations to the Supreme Court. And I realize those two questions are are not tightly related, but perhaps they will be in your answers. Perhaps not. So, Robin, I'll start with you. Okay. Um, and what was the first question? So, are, are there concerns specific to the state of New York? I'm thinking about things like I'm thinking about things like aid to 9/11 first responders, but but that's the one that someone like me sitting in Kentucky is familiar with. Are there other things specific to your state that you think the Senate ought to be focused on? Absolutely. And I'm, what I'm finding is that well, I would just like to say in general, even though someone is a senator of a particular specific state, it's still a federal position that has global ramifications. And and I'm very aware of that. And I'm also finding that obviously um, how a senator of New York votes is still going to affect the life of somebody in like Tennessee or Kentucky. Uh, so with that said, from the, the campaigning that I've done around the state and talked to average everyday New Yorkers, it's a lot of the same issues. Um, there's there's lack of industry. There's the Rust Belt of New York State because of jobs that have been outsourced to China. Um, there's there's lack of economies because of the monoculture of corporations that have come on and closed and shuttered all of their, their local Main Street stores. There's also a lot of issues of contamination of communities as a result of many of these industries that have come and gone. Um, for example, a Kodak in Rochester. Um, and also I know that, that Binghamton also is a city that has huge pollution problems. And 
we don't acknowledge just how interconnected that is with other issues. So let's take, for instance, um, cities like uh, Rochester and Syracuse, because uh, both of those have lead contamination levels that may be comparable to or even rival Flint, Michigan, but we're not hearing about that in the media. And even tying this back to a conversation that we had earlier about education and being the great equalizer, but if you have a whole generation and a section of the population that has struggled with lead poisoning from the water supply or from the lead paint and in their old homes, then their chances for success have been compromised because of the learning disabilities that come from that. Or, or how about the fact that lead uh, messes with the front frontal lobe, which affects impulse control, which can lead to violent crime. And so all of these are interconnected. The people of New York State basically need a rejuvenation of industry and their hyper-local communities. They need to have their communities cleaned up. They have many of the same fights as was going on in North Dakota with pipelines. There's the Algonquin pipeline expansion. There's the Spectra AIM pipeline in which Senator Chuck Schumer, the incumbent, did not speak up and take a strong enough stance again, even though it's documented that that huge numbers of New Yorkers are against these projects. Those are the kinds of issues. And also, um, police accountability is apparently also a very huge issue across New York State. So that, in addition to making sure that the 9-11 first responders are, are being caretaked as they have definitely earned and deserve, but we also need to hold them accountable in a way that's fair to all New Yorkers. We need to clean up New York State. We need to invest in our local organic farmers upstate because it's a very different world up there compared to New York City and all of the aspects of what New York, the great state of New York has to offer needs to be supported by their federal government. So, Alex, I will turn to you and then come back to the Supreme Court and advice and consent process and just ask you what New York specific concerns you would advocate for in the United States Senate. Okay, so bottom line, as I traveled New York, um, especially upstate, the the two big concerns that I heard were um, the economy and drug abuse. And as admittedly, while I, I feel pretty strong when it comes to economic issues, the environment is essentially sort of the area where I sort of I'm least knowledgeable. So if I'm U.S. Senator, I'm definitely going to be reaching out to Robin because um, she definitely knows her, what the environmental issues upstate, and I would definitely want to you know tap into that. Um, but far as the drug abuse and the economy, what I can do as a U.S. Senator is at least try to find relief to policy, federal policies that make it harder to do business. Um, essentially taxes, regulatory reforms, and regulatory reforms doesn't always just necessarily mean get rid of rules, okay? I always talk about simplicity. Um, basically, when doing regulatory reform, you should be asking yourself two questions. One, is this a good rule? 
if it's a good rule, can we make it simpler? Can we make it easier to follow, less costly to follow? If it's a bad rule, then get rid of it. And that's the kind of approach I would like to take going down regulation to regulation. Not every, because again, a lot of regulations get put in there, not because of some sort of humanitarian or, or, or uh, concern. It's, it's a lot of times it's some sort of cronyist type of rule to prevent competition, to prevent uh, people from competing with large firms. So, some, so basically, I don't want to. I don't. I want to make sure that regulatory reform isn't a dirty word. And same thing with tax reform, because simplifying taxes and making less favoritism in the tax code, making the tax code simpler, so that way it's easier to do business. Again, simplicity is not. A, it's not just about how much taxes you charge. It's also just about how hard it is to file your taxes, how hard it is to comply with regulations. Because the harder it is to do those things the less likely people are going to even want to try to start a business. So yeah, you may say, oh, certain businesses may be struggling, but it's not even that. What you're not seeing is the people who never started a business because we've made the process too complex. So by reforming that, you can maybe make it easier for people to start businesses and invest in upstate Rochester. And, uh, and generally, if you do improve economic outcomes, you can improve the outcomes when it comes to drug abuse. Because, I mean, in my experiences, I have, I've had several people, including a brother uh, who died recently of, of drug abuse-related issues. A lot of times people get into drug abuse, generally a lot of times out of frustration with their lives, which a big part of it comes from economic frustration. Um, so you have an environment where people have more opportunities and are econ economically less frustrated. They might be less likely to get into drug abuse. But at the same time, you can reduce the harm of drug abuse by rethinking our war on drugs. Because what happens a lot of the time, because we push all these drugs into a black market, people go into a black market to buy, let's say, heroin. And what they do is they end up buying something that's not really heroin and they, they overdose more often. They die more often than they otherwise would. So I want to reduce, I want to change the economic environment. Hopefully that will reduce um, drug abuse to begin with and the environment in which drug abuse exists. But at the same time, I want to reform uh, the drug law so that way our drug policy is one of compassion, not of punishment. Because punishment doesn't necessarily get people off drugs. Punishment doesn't get people necessarily stop dealing dr drugs illegally because there's a demand for it illegally. But compassion can help bring people out into the open and get people to make changes in their life or at least reduce the harm of it. So I think those things would make huge changes in upstate New York and places like, as, as Robin mentioned, uh, Rochester, where Kodak has shrunk over the years and they were they deindustrialized or in Binghamton where IBM left and they became deindustrialized. And right now in Buffalo, where they're losing a lot of jobs because Solar City is struggling, um, despite the large subsidies that were given to them. Um, so far as upstate New York, uh, that's what I have to say. Oh, actually, just all of New York, because I mean, even in the city, people are struggling from drug abuse and economic frustrations. So addressing those two issues would affect the entire state of New York in some of the, I think, most valuable areas there is. And I do agree with Robin that if there is, um, I mean, again, I don't know the stats, so I, I, I'm sure that this is the case about the, the lead levels in, in Rochester and whatnot, that do, does need to be addressed. Um, I would probably push the state legislature or the local county legislators to do that as a U.S. senator. We could make more visibility for those issues. So not everything that a U.S. senator does has to be proposing a new policy, proposing a new law. You can use the visibility of a U.S. senator to go out and advocate for certain issues, bring visibility to certain issues. So I promise that as a U.S. senator, that I, I, one of the things I want to do is actually bring visibility to transgendered issues, because I have a lot of really close transgender friends. So bringing visibility and helping personally do fundraising uh, for charities and whatnot to help uh, runaways, to help 
provide support for high suicide rates within the transgender community, uh, jobless rates within the transgender community. But that doesn't necessarily mean I want to propose a new law, but it doesn't mean I can use the pulpit of Senate to, to make reforms by just going out there and, and getting involved and bringing visibility to an issue. So I'll now leave it to the Senate question. <laughs> yeah, well, so, so, the, so that's I think that's a good segue, though, because talking about what the role of a senator is, uh, one piece of being a senator is participating in the constitutional advice and consent process for Supreme Court nominations, and that's certainly a big issue going into the fall. So I'd like to ask you both very briefly what you think the role of the Senate is in that confirmation process and what qualifications and characteristics would you personally use to vet candidates in the confirmation process? And Robin, I'll start with you. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, 
Whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. Hmm. Well, I, I I think that we're ready for a, a new kind of senator. And I'll just a little backstory and preparing for this campaign and doing my own personal research, because I'm not going to lie, it's been a while since I've I've had civics class, which I'm learning. They barely even teach it all these days. And by actually looking at the definition of the, the root of the word senators, old Latin for old man. And I'd like to say that there is a distinction between an old man and a wise elder, because I'm not ageist, obviously. There's there's everybody, uh, regardless of where they are on the spectrum, has has wisdom and value. But as a wise elder, it's, it's got to be this balance of standing in your own experience and knowledge and confidence, but still being open and listening to people whose experiences are different from yours. I think that it's incredibly important for me as our senator to listen more than anything else. Yes, I have my own specific life experiences and I'm anchored in an urban center, which means that when I go upstate to to Rochester and the rural counties, it's more important that I'm I'm open and listening more than anything so that I can find where we have the common ground and so that I can be as much of a, a, a true representative of the people as possible, which is why I say that it's not me, but we are running for senator. And what I would also make sure is that there is more of a participation amongst the constituents, that it's not just on election day that people are asked to speak up and cast their vote. But there needs to be more of an ongoing dialogue, including with, well, who are we going to vet as a Supreme Court justice? Again, it's it seems like this is something that has become more um, politically charged in terms of its links to capitalism and favors to cronies and and a Supreme Court justice that may be more favorable to corporate interests than to that of the people which also goes back to uh, revoking corporate personhood because that is a big issue that has complicated everything all the way down to how we choose a Supreme Court justice. The actual people are the ones who already know so many of the answers, have amazing policy that has yet to be presented onto the floor of the House of Senate because they don't have that, that lobbying power and that cronyism that gets their voices heard. I intend to be the kind of senator that actually truly listens to the people and makes sure that their voices are amplified in the decision making that affects New Yorkers as well as the rest of the country. Alex, I'll turn to you now and ask about the Senate's role in the confirmation process and what types of Supreme Court justices you'd be looking for. Now, bottom line is this. Uh, Yes, advice and consent. I'm not going to 
use Senate hearings as a mo- for party politics. Okay, I'm, I I don't really care if Republicans beat Democrats. I don't care if Democrats beat Republicans. So I don't really think they should be holding up votes for the sole purpose of politics. Now, again, I do think there's a, play, a place and time for filibusters and and real um, using those tactics when it comes to issues that are really important to upholding the Constitution. But when it comes uh, to a Senate hearing, I'll just vote. I will vote against if I don't agree uh, with the Senate now, who, or, with, or with the SCOTUS nominee. Now, who, to me, should be a Supreme Court justice? Well, I have a very high bar because I have a very high bar of what I think is constitutional, not constitutional. Okay, I think two of the most ignored amendments are the Tenth and the Ninth Amendment. And to be very clear, the Tenth Amendment is very clear that it says that the powers that are not enumerated to the federal government in Article One, Section Eight of the Constitution, are not the federal government's authority. That's the state's authority. And if the states abuse that authority and abridge people's individual rights, that's where the Ninth Amendment comes in. So then you can step in and say, hey, state, you can't do that. But the idea is that the Ninth and Tenth Amendment really protect the citizens of the United States from both the federal and the state government from abridging their rights. And I would want a con- uh, a Supreme Court justice that understands that uh, and basically – and then also I would that would be reflected in what they think about cases such as Wickard v. Filburn. Okay, Wickard v. Filburn is a very famous case in which there was someone growing crops on their on their own property. And then the state government wanted to stop them from growing uh, crops on their own, or I think the federal government actually wanted to stop them from growing crops on their own property. And they said, with what authority do you have to do this? And they're arguing, well, since you're growing crops on your own land, you are not buying from the local store, so you are affecting interstate commerce. But that precedence basically opened the door for pretty much everything the government does nowadays. Like literally every time there's a Supreme Court justice decision, that case, Wickard v. Filburn, is always cited as the reason where the government gets the authority to pretty much do anything. So when you have that, then basically the door for government abuse and the and unaccountability of government power and the bleeding of those lines is really there. So Wickard v. Filburn is a very important case to me. The other one is Stump v. Sparkman, which is one that I think people really need to know about. This is the one that basically created judicial immunity. Uh, what happened here is that a mother asked the judge to have her daughter sterilized, and the judge went with it, and they told the girl that she had her appendix removed. And then what happened is that years later, when she gets married and decides she wants to have children, she finds out that she can't because a judge allowed them to remove her uterus. So then she sues the judge, and it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says, no, you can't hold judges, judges accountable for this. So in that case, there's nothing you can do. So basically her life is ruined and they're telling her that there is no line to what a judge can really do that they can be held accountable for. And this creates this uh, culture of immunity. And when it comes to any level of immunity, I always want to rethink immunity because when someone can act with no consequences, it does make it more possible that people are going to abuse their powers, whether it's prosecutorial immunity, judicial immunity, sovereign immunity. Um, immunity when it, or liability caps when it comes to oil companies, all of these things that are limit people from the consequences of their actions. And even if it's only slightly on the margins, it makes it more likely abuse for abuse to happen. I'm not saying there should be full liability, but that line needs to be rethought and rediscussed. And I would want Supreme Court justices that take that very seriously of deciding where the accountability in the judicial system is so that we have better uh, a better justice system. So those are the things that would be really important to me in deciding who is to sit on the Supreme Court. 
So we're coming to the end of our hour together. Before I turned over to you for your closing statements, I'd like to ask each of you very briefly to describe what you think is the biggest misconception about your party. So Robin, I'll start with you. <laughs> well, I, I think that there's, there's, there's two. One of the biggest misconceptions about the Green Party is that they only run candidates for president. And obviously, that's not true because I'm running for Senate <laughs> on a federal level. And I can say that in New York State, there's there's an incredible plethora of amazing candidates. There's uh, Matt Funicello running running for Congress in Glens Falls. There's there's Robin Barkenhagen. There's Robin Fox. There's um, Frank Shaw Francois. There's Daniel Vila and so on and so on. There's there's, but again, because the media shuts us out, and I personally very much reject the term third party, because once again, if you look at the ballot for president, you look at the ballot for senator of New York state, there's four candidates. So are, do they really think that we are so obtuse that we can't even count to four? And furthermore, third is usually used as a pejorative when we say uh, third place, third wheel, my favorite third world country. So no, we're not a third party. We are the non-corporate decentralized party with a planet earth first policy. And then the other misconception that I think is huge about the Green Party, uh, which may have been true in previous elections, but is that it is uh, predominantly a white liberal political party Whereas actually the Green Party is rapidly expanding and more and more every day reflecting the same kind of diversity across the American spectrum. And I myself, as a, a woman of African descent, I'm the daughter of a career military a combat medic in Korea and Vietnam. I have working class roots, I have student loan debt, I'm a regular person, just like everybody else. And so we are a strong, emerging, viable alternative to the corporate duopoly. And we are incredibly welcoming of people across the American spectrum. Thank you so much. Alex, what is the biggest misconception about the Libertarian Party? First, I'm going to start off with uh, the things that Robin pointed out, because those are the exact same things that people say about the Libertarian Party, that one, we don't run for other offices. I'm running for U.S. Senate. And also, we are also a very diverse party. For example, I'm Latino. Um, in Colorado, for U.S. Senate, we're running uh, Lily Tang Williams, who she grew up in Mao's China and basically came to America and fell in love with freedom and all that stuff. That She's one of the most amazing candidates that really exemplify why freedom is important. But, I mean, we also have Aaron Comey, who may be running for office next year. Uh, he, his story is tragic. He, yeah, he's, um, he, he was African-American. He grew up as a Jehovah's Witness. And basically what happened to him is that he got put in jail without a conviction for over a decade. So he was literally sitting in federal prison for over a decade without ever being convicted of a crime. Um, and basically the reason why that happened is particularly because of abuses of a judicial immunity, uh, as pointed out by the Supreme Court that I was talking about before. So we have very interesting people who are bringing very interesting issues to to the forefront. We have very interesting leaders, uh, literally a very diverse community. So I, I really recommend people looking to the people that I just mentioned. Um, 
But on top of that, and they're all running for office up and down the ballot. But another thing is that a lot of people like to always try to categorize libertarians as people without compassion. But there's no greater compassion than saying, I want you to live your life. I want you to have control of your life. It doesn't necessarily mean because I don't want government to force all sorts of different solutions doesn't mean I don't want solutions. Libertarians want solutions. Libertarians want people to work together. Our, our biggest concern is, over, is just over consent. And I think consent is a very important issue that I think everyone can get behind, that we want people to be, choose to be part of the solution, to choose to solve problems. Because it's not just because it's for moral reasons, while that's definitely a big part of libertarianism, but also there's a, there's, um, there's a practicality in it. For example, think of a relationship. In a relationship, you always strive to please the person you're in a relationship with because there's because it's voluntary, because you know that that person can choose to stop being in a relationship with you. So the only way for that relationship to continue is if both of you are providing value for each other. But the minute one person feels like the other person or one person feels like they don't have a choice to be in the relationship, that dynamic changes. And that's how relationships become abusive, because the other person begins to feel like they can get away with things knowing that the other person won't walk away. That's the same thing in the way we solve our institutions, the way our institutions are, are arranged, etc. So we, we want compassionate solutions, we want community solutions, but we want them to be heavily based on consent and voluntary participation because that'll make these arrangements produce more, more value in that same way. So libertarians are very much about compassion and, and when people try to sit there and think that uh, basically stereotype as all libertarians as someone who read all they did was read Alice Shrug and decided to shrug off the rest of the world, I find that very offensive, and I find that to be the very go-to answer for most people when they just want to dismiss libertarians and not actually have a real conversation. Well, I want to thank you both for having a real conversation today. The spirit with which you approach this debate is exactly the spirit of this podcast. And so I really have enjoyed and found it to be such a privilege to talk with you. And with that, I will turn it over to you, Robin, for your closing statement. Thank you so much, Beth and Alex as well, because I, I, I think that rather than see ourselves as adversaries, we, in order to change the culture, we have to be that culture. And what I have also found very stimulating about this process, again, is that rather than seeing seeing Alex and I as if we're working against each other, we're, we're both moving forward and trying to change this culture of America. We're anchored in different worldviews. And again, mine is, is predominantly as an artist, activist, and an aspiring educator to make that change. Hence, that's why I say it's not me, but we are running for senator because we are all invested in whatever happens November 9th, starting November 9th. This election is only the beginning, not the end of of having these conversations, of figuring out how we can work together, how all of these, these issues from the economy to education to energy to culture, how we can elevate Earth first, planet first, because if it's not good for the planet, it's not good for the people. Taking care of the people and making sure their needs are met so that we can ultimately finally have peace in the world. And once there's peace in the world, there's truly prosperity. And like I said, prosperity, that is as universal as the sunlight that shines on every single one of us. Thank you so much, Robin. Alex, your closing statement? 
I agree. This is really only the beginning. And at the end of the day, we want there to be as many options for people in the electoral process as, as possible because competition breeds accountability. And at the end of the day, the way balloting rules, electoral rules have gone, they've limited the competition and have really destroyed accountability to the two major, uh, to the major parties. And basically you have politicians who basically just tell you what you want to say, give you very little other options, and then do something completely different once they're in office. And the only way to do that is to vote differently, to vote for another party that most that represents principle. And also, after this election, so I really, really ask you this year to vote for principle over power. So vote green or vote libertarian, but vote for one of the alternative parties, one, as, as Robin says, the non-corporate parties. Basically, the way I would like, think about it is it would be a better world if we had two pro-peace parties, the green and the libertarians, debating over economics, than two pro-war parties debating over economics, which is what we have now. Um, but at the end of the day, we all need to work together across all the parties to really rethink our electoral system, gerrymandering in districts, uh, ballot access in states, uh, basically everything about how we allow people to participate in the process. And things that I recommend people look into is things like um, ranked choice voting, uh, approval voting. I really like approval voting. But mm -hmm. I think these things Great. will make... Agreed. Yeah. These, these things will really make differences. But at the end of the day, I also ask people to not let this conversation end on November 8th. Whether you're a libertarian or not, I ask you to keep the conversation with me going. Like my Facebook page and hear what I have to say. And then tell me when you disagree with me. Tell me when you agree with me. But I want to keep this conversation going so that way we all can have a better conversation on the issues. And if I'm a U.S. senator, November 9th, trust me, everything I've said in this about changing the culture of politics, about basically creating visibility and showing how public office can be used and not just be used to control people will be done. I will stick to my promises and and I'll need you guys to hold me accountable because that's how this works. At the end of the day, no one individually can hold themselves accountable. It needs to be the people and that's why I want to be accessible so that way you guys can call me out if I ever step, if I ever step in the wrong direction because I want accountability, I want transparency, I want thoughtfulness and I, I need you guys with me, behind me. So vote Vote differently this year. So uh, hopefully you'll vote libertarian, but at the end of the day, vote differently. So you'll find more information to keep the conversation going for both Alex and Robin in our show notes. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please do stay in touch with us at Pantsuit Politic on Twitter and Pantsuit Politics on Facebook. You can also go to our website, PantsuitPoliticsShow.com. Sarah and I will be with you every single day leading up to the election. And for the rest of the week, let's keep it nuanced, y'all. Bye.